Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. I want to thank everyone for being here. I want to thank the witnesses for joining us today as we discuss options for reforming the Broadcasting Board of Governors. We are currently working on legislation, and your input is important to this process. So again, thank you. Voice of America and Radio Free Europe are critical during the, were critical during the Cold War, and BBG continues that legacy by informing global audiences about U.S. foreign policy and broadcasting objective news into countries with no free press. BBG's work is, is as critical as ever when authoritarian regimes around the world deprive their citizens of credible news and use sensational misinformation to undermine the credibility of democratic values and institutions. We see this propaganda providing cover for oppression within these regimes and aggression abroad with ruthless effect. The U.S. can and must present the other side of the story, and that requires reorganizing the BBG to be a more effective voice. Appointing a CEO who's with us today was a step in the right direction, but the position is not fully empowered to make strategic decisions. Independent analysis has also determined that the BBG's deep involvement with its grantees impedes their success and creates the appearance of a conflict of interest, and I'm sure there'll be certain uh, statements countering that today, but uh, that's what some independent analysis has said. Nobody is making the tough choices about which language services to prioritize, and broadcasters aren't being held accountable for achieving results. Results, in my opinion, should not mean audience reach or even listenership. It should mean, are we informing our target audience and helping it form its own opinion on important topics. I'm not sure we can answer that question right now, and I know that all of you would agree the American taxpayer deserves an answer. Many options for reforming the BBG have been put on the table. The House has put forward a very sensible bill, and we are looking closely at it. The war of ideas is especially dangerous in the information age, and the BBG must be retooled to compete in an increasingly hostile environment for democratic free market values that are the anchor for global security and stability. And with that, I turn to our distinguished ranking member. Well, thank you, Chairman Corker, for convening this hearing on the United States International Broadcasting. As we open today's discussion, it is essential that we recognize that the U.S. International Broadcasting is an integral component of our efforts to advance freedom of expression and freedom of the press and to share with the world the democratic values we hold so dear here in the United States. U.S. international broadcasting has played an important role in several of the most important geopolitical advances in the last half a century. To cite just one example, we have consistently heard from our friends in Eastern Europe about how U.S. international broadcasting played a critical role in their transition to a more open democratic societies. Today, citizens around the world, specifically those living in closed and restricted societies, continue to rely on U.S. international broadcasting. They turn to content produced by the Voice of America to understand U.S. perspectives on current events. And they turn to surrogate broadcasting services, such as those provided by Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and Radio Free Asia, for objective reporting on local events in their own country that they would otherwise uh, be denied. Despite the importance of U.S. international broadcasting, we have come to understand that the structure of the BBG has limited the effectiveness of its efforts. In its January 2013 report, the State Department's Inspector General stated that PBG, and I quote, 
Dysfunction stems from a flawed legislative structure, end quote, and observed that a part-time board cannot effectively supervise the agency's operations. It is clear that reform is needed and that Congress has a central role to play in strengthening the existing efforts. As part of this process, I would like to see Congress authorize a permanent CEO position, and I also support current proposals that bring together various surrogate broadcasting services into a single institution. Additionally, while we must guarantee that journalistic integrity and objectivity are absolutely preserved in any reform effort, I see the need for better coordination between BBG and the rest of government. And we need new tools to better evaluate the impact of U.S. international broadcasting. These are common sense proposals that should be part of any legislative effort. Mr. Chairman, let me point out that the world changes pretty quickly. And you look at the decision-making process on resources, which many times are a year and a half before the actual budget takes place, and the world has changed a lot during that 18-month period. We need to have the flexibility to put resources where they're the most important to, this, to U.S. interests. And it's critically important, I believe, for this committee, the authorizing committee in the United States Senate, to have a role in regards to how those resources are allocated. We know the pie is not as large as we'd like it to be, but we strategically have to use it in the places where the most beneficial to U.S. interest. And that requires an engagement through, I hope, the authorizing legislation so that Congress can play an important role in that regard. I look forward to hearing from all of our witnesses today about how they view current legislative proposals and what legislative changes they think are most critical. Finally, it is important that we recognize that technology has drastically reshaped the way that we consume information and that our broadcasting efforts are but one option among a vast number of media platforms. I hope our witnesses can speak about how, on a strategic level, we can update our efforts to connect with new audiences while at the same time continuing to utilize the traditional tools that have been critical to our success to date. In closing, as former Secretary of State Clinton said in her testimony before Congress in 2013, January 2013, we're abdicating the ideological arena and we need to get back into it. I couldn't agree more. I look forward to today's discussion and working with the chairman and my colleagues here on this committee on reform legislation. Well, thank you very much. Our first witness is Mr. John Lansing the newly appointed CEO to the Broadcasting Board of Governors and former president of Scripps Networks. Uh, we're glad you're in this position and thank you for being here today. Our second witness is the Honorable Jeffrey Shell, chairman of Universal Filmed Entertainment Group and has been chairman of the BBG since uh, 2013. We appreciate the role that you're playing there. Our third witness is the Honorable Kenneth Weinstein, the President and CEO of the Hudson Institute and a board member of BBG. Thank you for your service. We thank you all for being here. If you could summarize your comments in about five minutes, we'd appreciate that, and then we look forward to questions. Thank you. And just go in the order I introduce you, if that's all right. Thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the committee. My role as CEO is delegated by the BBG board. I oversee all operational aspects of U.S. international media and provide day-to-day -day management of the five BBG media entities on behalf of the board. I've submitted my written testimony, and so I'll just summarize here in these oral remarks. I want you to know first that my initial impressions are best summed up in the great pride I have in the professional, courageous, and often dangerous work undertaken every day by our journalists around the world. I say that both as a new CEO here and as an American citizen. As the purpose of this hearing is to explore the options of reforming the BBG, let me first make clear 
that I believe reform is both important and necessary. Any media company today that is not reforming and meeting the audiences where they are is at risk of irrelevancy. I look forward to working with you, Senator Corker and Senator Cardin and this whole committee in helping move the BBG forward to fulfill its critical role in U.S. international media. Our role at the BBG is to provide impactful and professional journalism that is credible, agile, and responsive to parts of the world awash in propaganda that is underlying and motivating much of the violent activity as seen in Paris on Friday. Credibility of our reporting is our greatest asset. We do not do propaganda. In my first few months in this role, I've listened carefully to key stakeholders of the BBG here on Capitol Hill, the State Department, and the White House, to name a few. From those conversations and my own observations, I've developed five core themes that provide a framework for how I believe and the board supports we can make the BBG more impactful. They are written in detail in my written remarks, but I'll cover them briefly here. First, number one, aggressively shift to mobile, digital, and other online uh, uh, platforms to meet our audience where they are today, particularly younger, more urban, young influencers. Second, operate the five brands st strategically, create the U.S. International Media Cooperative Committee, which I've done as of last month, and have the five entities work together to have the greatest possible impact working together and not at odds with one another. Third, curate more and create less for maximum benefit and impact, meaning look for an opportunity to curate content so that the money we do invest in content can be the contents the most impactful and offers the greatest perspective to the issues we're covering. Fourth, focus our resources on the most difficult problem areas in the world, including the growing influence of China, Russia, and of course countering violent extremism, which seems to know no geographic boundary. And fifth, and perhaps, mo perhaps most important, to measure impact beyond audience reach. All media companies today, whether in the private sector and certainly in the public sector, have to understand that reach is not enough anymore. Reaching an audience or even having an audience consume the media uh, doesn't tell you anything about the impact that media is having on those audiences. And we must hold ourselves accountable to our stakeholders, to you, that we are measuring that impact. When I first heard word of the violence in Paris, I was boarding a plane in Kiev, Ukraine, heading back to Washington. I had just completed my visit there, having begun with some meetings earlier in the week at RFERL in Prague and then on to Kiev, where VOA and Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty actually do operate cooperatively and strategically to provide maximum impact in Ukraine. Together, the two entities, one federal and the other a grantee, are acting effectively as a counterweight to the pernicious propaganda coming from Moscow. The joint production, production, for example, of a program called Current Time that is produced both in Prague and Washington on a daily basis is the most visible and effective example of cooperation between any two entities at the BBG. It now airs in nine countries on the Russian periphery via 25 media outlets as it regularly counters propaganda with factual reporting. In addition, VOA's program Prime Time, which broadcasts Right uh, over here at 3rd and Independence Avenue fe features hard-hitting interviews by our own Miroslava Gangatse with Ukrainian, U.S., and other foreign leaders in which international policies of the U.S. and other countries toward Ukraine are explored and explained through her skilled interviews. Complementing VOA's international coverage, RFERL produces hard-hitting local 
coverage throughout Ukraine, particularly in Kiev, often highlighting local government corruption and wrongdoing. So the combination of international and local and the combination of two BBG entities, one federal and one a grantee, having tremendous impact there. VOA and RFERL programs are carried on more than 120 Ukrainian media outlets and are being beamed into occupied Crimea and eastern Ukraine. From meetings with our own Ambassador Pyatt and prominent Ukrainian officials, it's clear to me that through the combination of VOA and RFERL, the BBG is having a significant impact on supporting the young, fledgling democracy of Ukraine as it struggles with Russian-backed coercion on its eastern border and Crimea. For instance, I had the privilege to meet with Ms. Hanna Hopko, chair of the Ukrainian Foreign Relations Committee uh, on Foreign Affairs, and well known by members, I'm sure, of this committee. When I told her last Friday while we were discussing media in Ukraine that I was going to have an opportunity to testify here before this committee, she asked me to share this with you. And this is a quote I wrote down. RFE and RL and VOA provide the truth and objective information that is so much needed in Ukraine today. VOA and RFERL, she said, show, show things as they are and set a standard of professionalism for Ukrainian media outlets. She went on to explain that there is no other media in Ukraine that can be counted on for truthful and fact-based reporting beyond VOA and RFERL working together. I'm immensely proud of the work of our journalists in Ukraine, Prague, and around the world. I've been brought in as CEO to ensure that this comprehensive, coordinated, an impactful approach is engaged in other hotspots, particularly with regard to violent extremism, so shockingly on display in Paris this past Friday. It would not be possible to do that if the BBG entities were operating at cross purposes with dueling CEOs, for example, or dueling boards. As you review options for reforming the BBG, I would ask this committee to please consider the critical need for US international media to be focused, strategically led, and capable of immediate surge capacity under the leadership of a single CEO, me or anyone else, and a single board, just as any private or commercial media company would be organized. Having spent 40 years in my professional media career, 30 of which as a manager at various levels, I honestly can't imagine running a competitive media company with two CEOs any more than you would manage a football team with two head coaches. The example I shared from my visit in Ukraine represents the potential to increase our impact around the world with a strategy and a management structure that supports all five entities as a collective set of media assets for the United States government for maximum results. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Mr. Shell. Thanks, John. Uh, thank you, Chairman Corker and, and, and uh, Senator Cardin and the rest of the committee for inviting us here today. I have a longer written statement as well that I submitted, but I'm just going to summarize it very briefly here. The BBG and its five networks are not widely known by most Americans, but our mission is critical now as it's ever been, a fact that was tragically punctuated once again in Paris last week, as John said. You know, the United States faces many global challenges, violent extremist groups like Daesh, aggressive and destabilizing actions by countries like Russia and others, and the erosion of freedom of expression and many others. While a strong military and strong diplomacy are vital, ultimately it's our values and our ideas that will win the day. That's where the BBG comes in. Our mission is straightforward. Engage and connect with people around the world and support democracy and our values by telling the truth. As this committee knows, the BBG is overseen by a bipartisan board of people like me with day jobs. 
My day job is running Universal's film business, a global business I've run for the last two plus years. Every day in that business, I grapple with the rapid and fundamental changes occurring in the media business. The same changes are actually affecting the BBG, but unlike Universal, the BBG also has to deal with the rapid and frightening geopolitical challenges that you all deal with. We need to be at the top of our game to do so, but unfortunately, as many of you know, the BBG has been far from effective in past years. Responsibility lies at the top. Prior boards were fragmented and overtly political, not up to the challenge of running a global media uh, organization. They were not providing our talented team, many of whom risk their lives every day, as John said, with the leadership they deserve. Furthermore, most of our services were not set up to fight the asymmetric and digital challenges we now face. Today, I'm happy to report that we are turning things around. We have a highly functioning, nonpartisan board of experts who are providing the leadership we need. I have to say, serving on a number of boards in both the public and private sector, this is the most highly functioning board I've seen in either place. As a board, we recognize that we can't and we shouldn't play an operational role. So we recruited and brought on a fantastic CEO, John Lansing, who you just heard from. And working with John, we're making the necessary reforms to make us more effective and allow us to join the critical fights this nation faces. That is not to say there's nothing else to be done. There are other fixes we need to work with all of you in Congress on. First, as John mentioned, we need to empower the CEO and future CEOs with the authority to run BBG's complex organizations. And we need to simplify our organization and make it more agile, as you said, Senator Cardin, so we can better surge resources to where we need them. Interestingly enough, I was nominated three years ago, and Russia wasn't even a threat at that point. We were thinking about how to de-emphasize Russian. Times have certainly changed on that, uh, on that side. So along with a few other, those fixes will position BBG to be a powerful force for our national interest. Before I finish, I want to add a few words about last week's horrific act actions in Paris. They are incredibly relevant to this hearing. As President Obama said, this is an attack on all humanity and the universal values we share. American ideals and ideas are more important than ever in the fight against Daesh and global extremism. We need every single tool in the toolkit to be sharp and ready to go, and that includes the BBG. We, we actually brought a little video here. I think in the interest of time, we won't show this now to give questions, but if people are interested in the, in the back, we, we launched a show called Delusional Paradise in the Middle East, which is a week, weekly 30-minute documentary series that offers firsthand accounts of families who had suffered at the hands of Daesh and exposes the brutality and ideology and strips its narrative of appeal. Tools like this show and Current Time, which John mentioned, a joint VOA and RFERL daily program that reports on a Russian aggression and propaganda, are incredibly powerful. Are we effective and impactful in this vice as we could or should be? No, not by a long shot. However, organizationally, we are pointed in the right direction, and ultimately, I, we believe fervently that our ideas will win the day. We look forward to working with this committee and Congress and making BBG what it should be, a powerful tool for our national interest. As I said earlier, I have a day job, uh, but BBG is my national service. I'm incredibly proud of the record year we had at Universal with a number of box office global hits, but I have to say I'm even more proud of the progress we've made here at BBG, and it's been an honor to serve my country in this fashion. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and members of the committee. Thank you very much, Mr. Weinstein. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, other members of the committee. I am truly honored to testify today about uh, the Broadcasting Board of Governors and its importance and the critical operating environment uh, we operate in at this moment when reform is being considered. I've submitted my written testimony already, and let me just uh, issue a, an abbreviated version here verbally. Let me first begin by saying uh, 
uh, how pleased I am uh, at the BBG that we have an incredible CEO, John Lansing, on board. And John is uh, someone who brings ex extraordinary experience with him, and especially pleased that uh, to work with uh, Chairman Jeff Schell. Uh, Jeff is, is also an extraordinary leader. You have heard about the dysfunctions of the BBG boards of the past. That is no longer the case. We're Democrats and Republicans. Jeff and I do not agree on many issues about uh, how the United States should respond to various crises around the globe. We do agree on, on what the BBG is doing, and that agreement is wide through all of our members, including uh, Ambassador Ryan Crocker, arguably the most distinguished uh, diplomat uh, that, uh, who has served the United States in the last half century, as I've heard him referred to, Ambassador Karen Kornblue, the former ambassador at the OECD in Paris, uh, Matt Armstrong, a public diplomacy uh, expert, and Michael Kempner, a communications expert. Uh, the strong leadership here transcends partisan lines. And we need this right now because we're in an incredible context for U.S. international media, one, as we all know, of rapid geopolitical change, instability in world affairs, instability uh, which our strategic competitors seek to benefit from, whether it be Russia, China, Iran, ISIS, and other Islamist extremists uh, bringing significant assets against us on multiple levels. And last week's attack in Paris uh, by ISIS was one example, Russia's presence in Syria, de facto alliance with Iran, another. This uh, change, this uh, geostrategic instability occurs and rising threat level occurs also at a time of massive technological innovation, a time when the enemies of liberty are more adept than ever at using cost-effective technologies that equalize the price of dissemination of their false accounts of information to the cost of, uh, and sometimes give them an, a cost advantage over our attempts to broadcast the truth. Both elite and public opinion have proven unsure and unsteady about how to react to unprecedented policy change, and into this breach has stepped massive new state propaganda agencies. Peter Ponomarantsev, has termed this the uh, weaponization of information, the use of the tools of a free society, including media and social media, to defend the indefensible tyranny, kleptocracy, invasion, murder, pre-modern views of society that deny individual rights. And today we've seen the massive growth of state-sponsored platforms, whether it be RT, which according to the State Department and its various uh, other associated media outlets spend $1.4 billion a year to present a distorted message, CCTV, which is, according to the Columbia Journalism Review, spending 19 times what the, broad, what the uh, BBC spends in English each year. We saw the reports last week of Radio China International outlets in the United States that uh, Reuters highlighted. And so this, this makes a very complex uh, uh, background against which we have to respond. There's also another major challenge, as we know, which is the transnational power and appeal of groups such as ISIS, that use digital communities without geographic limitation. Technology compresses the time and space needed for disinformation to spread, and they've spread this romanticized vision of the caliphate through the social media, not just in the Middle East, but in uh, Central Asia, in Europe, as we saw last week, Africa, and elsewhere. The sheer volume of available information has a major impact on how global audiences consume information and how they make social, economic, and political decisions. This is a very different environment during the Cold War when there was an information vacuum that Voice of America and Radio Free Europe were able to step into to bring about significant change. The BBG, our global reach and our credibility have a critical role to play in correcting falsehoods and holding people and institutions accountable. Um, let me simply note that uh, having reviewed the uh, complex environment that the BBG is operating in, let me touch briefly on a few key areas where we're having impact. Responding to Russia. Russia, as we all know, has turned the weaponization of information into an art form. 
To respond, we are engaging key audiences in Russia, on the Russian periphery, and globally by providing facts, the reality of U.S. and Russian activities. We've, you've already heard about current time, the uh, VOA, RFERL joint program, 30 minutes a day in Russian. That is, it is now being expanded into Central Asia. It's, it's now on nine countries and 25 media outlets available to digital audiences worldwide with a following beginning in Russia of uh, 2 million people online. More than 500 Central Asian military media outlets have already subscribed to RFERL Central Asia Newswire. Our footage versus footage feature a new daily video pro product that contrasts how Russian media and global media report on the same events uh, is also uh, become an important and useful tool. Let me note about uh, uh, what we're doing against uh, to uh, cover uh, jihadi narratives, violent jihadi narratives, that we, as we all know, often go unaddressed within local media environments. To counter these narratives, we focus on delegitimizing extremism by reporting on and exposing the realities of extremist groups, as Jeff noted, and promoting diverse voices in the Muslim community who are otherwise overlooked in biased media environments. The Middle East Broadcasting Network's Raise Your Voice campaign continues to encourage citizens across the Middle East to speak out and be part of the discussion about the fight against extremism. We are seeking to create communities of discussion among moderate Muslims whom we give platforms to to disseminate their ideas. There are lots of other examples like a site, Iran, China, Internet Freedom, uh, Teaching English, but let me just cite a couple of, let me just quickly cite a couple of key wins uh, the last few months. In Nigeria, Nigeria was facing a serious uh, epidemic of polio, and uh, the BOA partnered with uh, the CDC to get news out to end the distortions about uh, the dangers of vaccines in, in Nigeria, and all of a sudden, as of last month, Nigeria is no longer on the list of countries where polio is endemic. In Burundi, uh, after an attempted coup, uh, VOA remained the only station, the only private station on the air after the government shut down all privately owned radio stations. In short, let me conclude by noting we're, we're in a moment of rapid geopolitical change, significant technological evolution, and there are many unprecedented challenges in the global information space. In the face of these challenges and with budgets that are far exceeded by those of our geostrategic competitors, the BBD is having significant impact in some of the most difficult locations on Earth. We are all for reform, but we do believe that these successes are a foundation to build on, and we hope that the committee will remain cognizant of our growing success as it considers reform. Thank you very much. Thank you, and thank you for trying to rapidly get through um, you know, the story you're trying to tell about BBG and all of you for your service. Uh, look, we've all traveled the world and seen how in many places we're having it handed to us relative to information. Uh, we would call what they're doing propaganda. As President uh, Lansing would say, uh, we would call what we're uh, sending out the actual news. But the fact is, uh, we know in places like Eastern Ukraine and other places, uh, we're, we're, you know, we're having it handed to us. So we thank you for the job you're doing. We do understand there have been changes, positive changes. I will say most of us have heard some pretty uh, negative exit interviews from former BBG board members and some current, not today, but while they were serving a few years ago. So we're glad the environment is better there. I think all of us constructively uh, want to put in place some reforms uh, to make BBG even better for the long haul. You happen to have a board that's getting along better today. You know, obviously that's not institutionalized. So let me just ask a few questions. Uh, first of all, Y'all have decided to have a full-time CEO on your own. Is that, a, is that correct? That's correct, yes. And you could change that immediately. Is that correct? 
We could change that immediately. And so what kind of uh, status? I know Mr. Lansing has had a great private sector career and can do this as public service. Uh, what status do you have right now within the organization? I mean, can they fire you tomorrow? How, how is this set up? I serve at the pleasure of the board right now. Do you have a contract? No. Is there a reason to, for us to certainly not make you permanent uh, institutionally through legislation, but is there a reason for us to at least consider causing there to be a full-time CEO because we had part-time board members trying to run an organization that obviously uh, Senator Perdue knows for sure uh, that does not work. Should we do that? Uh, I would say yes, uh, especially having now been involved uh, for most of three to four months, a few months prior to joining officially and joining officially in September. The reality is, and it'd be no surprise to any of you that are business uh, men and women, that operating a complex business with eight or nine appointed governors who are part-time and meet four or five times a year is a recipe for, to, for to what's call it, happening well, to call it dysfunction would be to, to assume that that could somehow be functional. It right. was d is designed to be dysfunctional. Let me ask you this, with the, uh, and I thank the board, by the way, for having the foresight to bring in a full-time CEO that actually knows something about what is occurring there. Um, do you have the authorities, even though they've put you in this position, do you believe you have the authorities to do all those things that would be necessary to appropriately reform BBG? I do, Senator Corker. Uh, I have a fantastic board. They're very supportive, but they operate as a good board does with oversight and guidance and policy review. And I feel like I have a very open channel, particularly with Chairman Shell, who I have a, a regular meeting with on a weekly basis, but they've given me that they've delegated the authority to me to make the decisions we need to make to be the most impactful we can be. There are a lot of people that disagree with that just for what it's worth, uh, even heads shaking behind you very negatively regarding that. So I, I do think that's something we want to pursue. Let me ask you this. There's been a push on the House side to consolidate the grantees. Um, you know, we have multiple entities uh, that now receive grants. There's been a movement uh, by their legislation to consolidate. I'd just love to have y'all's brief opinions on that. Um, I'll respond to that. Can I go back to the CEO just one, one second, Mr. Chairman, yes, if you sir. don't mind? Um, we are fortunate right now at the board that we have a great dynamic and an excellent CEO. I think you were very, um, very smartly pointed out that that is a moment in time. One of the things that's interesting is, by law, we can delegate certain authorities to John and certain authorities we can't delegate to John by law. And so we can give him the moral authority. For example, something as fundamental as language services. John doesn't have the authority by law to close a language service or, or surge resources into another language service. So even though the board can say, John, you're our proxy in that, and right now because of our working relationship, it's working, yeah. it could very easily not work tomorrow. So there are a number of authorities, I would say, that John has by virtue of the operating rhythm right now that actually we would urge um, all of you to consider memorializing and taking out of the hands of the board and, and delegating to a CEO so that the next CEO can have the same authority that John does with a different board, right? Well, since naturally it would be more difficult for him to ask for more authority than for you to share with us the additional authority you think we ought to give him, I think I'll focus more on you relative to that question. But if you would move along to yep. the consolidation of grantees, thank you for that input. That's helpful. Yeah, I think I, I think the on the consolidation question, I think it would be a smart thing to consolidate grantees, and I'll tell you why. And 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 Senator Cardin said this a little bit in his remarks. The you don't know when the next hotspot's gonna 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 
break out in the world. We don't know what tomorrow's battles will be today. And an 18-month process and 24-month process of resources doesn't work in this environment. It doesn't work in the military. It doesn't work with respect to us. And the grantees all have somewhat arbitrary geographic kind of, kind of boundaries. So if you decide, for example, that you want to take money out of a place in Asia and surge it into the Middle East to counter violent extremism, it's two different entities that you have to deal with, and it's much more difficult to do that. So a consolidation of the grantees would simplify our process to a certain extent and like make much easier to surge funds. Um, we're working, once again, it's one of the areas we've made work today under John's leadership. It's working well today. Good. But institutionalizing over that in the long run would be very smart, yeah. in my view. And let me just, so, so moving along that same path, so there seems to be some contention over the thought of then having a separate board for the grantees. Um, so there's agreement that the CEO by the board should have more institutional powers. There's an agreement, I think, that the grantees should be consolidated so you can move more quickly, as you just mentioned. Uh, there seemed to be some dissension over whether that the, the grantees ought to have a different board than BBG itself. And I wonder if y'all might, ex it seems to me that that would make a lot of sense to have a different board. Otherwise, you wonder why you have grantees in the first place. So it seems to me that editorial content, having some independence, having people who are closer to the clients that they're serving would make a lot of sense. Uh, some people disagree with that. I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts on that. I'll jump in and then my fellow um, uh, witnesses can talk about it. That is probably the part of the House bill that I disagree the most strongly with. I think that we are a organization with one mission that has fights all over the globe in different fashions and different ways with the same mission. And I think that having two boards and t two CEOs makes absolutely no sense. It's like having the Air Force and the Marines and one organization with one CEO and having the, you know, the Army and the Navy and, the, and another organization with another CEO. So I, it has nothing to do with me keeping my job. I have a day job. This is not what I, what I want to do. Me, I just think operating it. it is Thank you. I mean, difficult. you've answered the question. And, 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 you know, it's the same thing I think you said in your testimony. So the, the grantees, as I understand it, 100% of their funding comes through you guys and the federal government. If that's the case, why, why are the grantees not just part of BBG? I mean, it's a weird thing to me. Uh, to understand that uh, either the grantees are separate or they're not separate. Explain to me why we have then various entities. Uh, it's a legislative, uh, it's part of the legislative history of this organization that didn't get built all at once. It got built over time in different ways. It also is the grantees for the most part are private corporations, not federal agencies, whereas the BBG VOA is a federal agency. So there's a little bit of a distinction between federal and non-federal. But I, I think if you were going to start with a blank piece of paper and recreate this agency, as you all are looking to do, you would make it all one organization. It's the same mission. I have additional questions, but as a courtesy, uh, I'm going to stick within the time frame. Go ahead. Well, well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I found your exchange to be very helpful. You're correct. All of us have traveled um, over the world and have seen the value of VOA and the and, and the uh, the different NGO work that's being done. And uh, the NGO work does complement the Voice of America. So it's 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 a good mix. And uh, in my work in the Helsinki Commission, numerous times I have visited uh, the people who do the work, and am always impressed by their dedication. So. It's good to have you all here. Thank you very much for, for your efforts. Uh, I, I want to get to the point I raised initially. 
Currently, your budget's approved by the appropriators with line items to the NGOs, basically. Uh, and it's based, I assume, in part by your recommendations, uh, but it's done well in advance of knowing the current circumstances around the world and where priorities need to be. Also, this is the authorizing committee, nothing against the appropriators, but we have the responsibility to set priorities as it relates to the use of these resources in advancing American interest. And it would seem to me that if we are going to reform, and I hope we do, because I agree with the CEO and the other issues you're talking about, we should look at a way in which Congress and your agency can be closer in touch as to what the policymakers believe the priorities should be and, and the flexibility you need to meet changing circumstances and reports to us so that we keep that working relationship. It seems to me it also gives you a better advocate here in Congress to understand what you're doing. So I would hope as we look at a reform bill that we have your input as to how this committee and the comparable committee in the House of Representatives, the Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, can carry out our responsibility as authorizing committees as to how the different regions are funded and the missions of the different regions as it relates to furthering U.S. policy objectives. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I, we certainly would welcome uh, the input. We clearly, uh, and we, the authorizing committees are critical to, uh, to, to us, to, to our work, and we certainly would welcome uh, your input as we, as we go forward, absolutely. It's, uh, uh, we do, as, because of the appropriation cycle, it is oftentimes very challenging to handle uh, complex uh, geostrategic crises that arise, and uh, so we're, input is always very welcome, let me know. I would just point out, I, I've been on the, uh, on this committee since I got to Congress in 2007. And yes, I did know about your work, but not in relationship to our committee. So uh, I do think it would be better invested for this program, Mr. Chairman, if there was a more direct input that the authorizers have in the work that you're doing. Just a, just a suggestion might be helpful. Uh, I, I want to get to internet freedom. One of the, the you, you, you mentioned this in your written report, in your written testimony. But you know, obviously access to uh, the internet is a critical tool uh, and the censorship that we're seeing in so many countries to block their citizens from getting access to the internet uh, very much compromises the freedom of flow of information which is one of your objectives. Do you have um, uh, the resources and strategy to deal with the anti-censoring type of uh, opportunities we have to, to so, so that uh, people of these countries that have restricted press uh, can get better access to the internet? We do, Senator Cardin, although we will be seeking even more resources. In the past fiscal year, we had $14.5 million that went towards investments in various technologies to allow people who were being blocked from the internet to access the internet. We're in the process of building a framework of governance around those grants of dollars to make sure that we can protect that freedom and also guard against any misuse of that technology, and we want to guard against that at, uh, at the same time. Um, but we see that as a, as a role that we developed over the last three years that we can continue to invest in and have greater impact around the world by opening up the free internet. 
Well, I, I think it's a very important uh, part of the, the mission. Obviously, as you point out, and, and I should emphasize this, we want to maintain the journalistic integrity in the work that's being done. And the relationship for Congress has to be very careful that we don't compromise that. Uh, I agree with, with Senator Corker, we're fighting propaganda. I understand that. But the way we fight propaganda is through the truth, is through information. And part of that's the internet. And uh, we shouldn't be the only society that's burdened by the internet. They should also have those uh, issues in, in their country also. <laughs> So I, I really do think it's a mission that we need to take on, on a very high priority. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Perdue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I want to thank the three uh, witnesses today for their um, public service. This is a thankless job, as I can well relate. Um, I'm chair of the subcommittee that oversees the BBG, and I'm eager to work with you guys to, to make this uh, more effective and productive in the current environment. In my opinion, we've got uh, a global security crisis. Um, it, it manifests itself in many ways, but on three different levels. The rise of traditional rivals like China and Russia, uh, the rise of ISIS with their land-based caliphate, and then I think the proliferation of potentially dangerous rogue nations in nuclear proliferation like North Korea and Iran. In the midst of all that, you got varying degrees of disinformation and propaganda machines out there, well-funded uh, machines in China and Russia, and then you see not so well-funded but very effective efforts from ISIS in terms of not just fundraising but recruiting. And so in the midst of all that, the, the guys who get the bad deal are, is the American taxpayer. You know, we're the most philanthropic country in the history of the world, and yet we get no credit for it. Uh, our ideology is one of a colonialist country that's taking advantage of the, the, the less fortunate. I, I come to that with your challenge, your mission, um, Mr. Lansing, and thank you for taking this, this job. Uh, I hope you have it a while. And, um, but you talked about the, the, the mission or the goal of the, of the organization, and I want to talk about the balance between integrity and independence, uh, about content. Mr. Shell, that's your business. And I have a second question on media and how we do that, but Mr. Lansing, first, how do you balance, in coming to this role, how do you balance our objective of trying to get the truth out and still have a balance between, um, you know, the integrity of the content, but also trying to tell the American story. It is a taxpayer that's funding this, after all. No, absolutely, uh, Senator. The, the mission of the VOA, as you know very well, part of the mission is to tell America's story to the world and to discuss and explain U.S. foreign policy. And as far as I'm concerned, those are not issues of independence and journalism. Those are factual uh, elements of our reporting that help explain America to the world and I think help debunk the stories that exist in other parts of the world about what America is and what our values are in America. Could I interrupt just a second? Do you interact with the State Department and other foreign policy um, originators inside the government? One of my board members is Rick Stengel, who's the Undersecretary for Public Diplomacy. And we have a regular channel of communication with the State Department, although I will say to your point on independence, and I've been a journalist for uh, many decades, uh, and the reason I'm here, the first question that I asked before accepting the position is, tell me about the independence of this organization, and I learned about the firewall. And I think the firewall is critical in delineating brightly the difference between propaganda and fact-based professional journalism. And I talk about the firewall at every opportunity I, can, I get here, within our own organization or anywhere that I'm speaking, the importance of the firewall. 
so that our independence is protected because at the end of the day, if we're not perceived as independent, if our content isn't perceived to be credible, then we really have nothing to offer in, uh, in expressing America's values to the world that can be helpful or, or cause anything positive to happen in my view. At, at a very high level, could you help me understand how you allocate resources and focus? And I realize it's a board decision, but as you come in and looking at this new role, let's just characterize it as the Middle East issue. Sure. The, the ISIS, Iran, uh, Hezbollah, all the other actors there versus traditional rivals of China and Russia particularly, and I know there are many others. How, how, do, you, how do you see that demarcation of uh, allocation of assets? Well, we have, you, as you know, we, we broadcast uh, radio and television in over 60 languages. Um, and it, to, to a large degree, while we spread out very, very broadly, 70% uh, of all of our investment goes to 11 languages, including the 11 most prominent and impactful languages, in Mandarin, uh, Arab uh, Arabic, uh, Russian, for example. And as I look at the resources to be expended, and as I discussed in my five themes, I think the top uh, issue for investment for the BBG is investing in social, mobile, and digital platforms. Now, they're not the most used platforms in many parts of the world where we have the most difficulty, but they are the most used among young, urban influencer, influencers who will influence the debate going forward much more directly than people listening to shortwave radio or even broadcasting. I want to ask Mr. Shell that in a second, but I, I yeah. want to ask you this. In terms of, the, is there a correlation between geography and language? And, and the reason I ask, when I lived in France, there were a lot of um, different languages spoken, and now even more today, obviously. So, for example, do we have Arabic language um, content going to parts of Europe, for example? We don't, but I believe we should. I, I think as I look at the, at the rise of ISIS and what happened in Paris, and you realize what's happening to a large extent is disaffected youth in, in parts of European cities that are being radicalized, and sometimes they're coming from Syria, but sometimes they're really just coming from parts of Europe where they're, for whatever reason, they're able to be radicalized. Well, Scandinavia, so, UK, yeah, and I, the Latin I, country. Yeah, I think it's, it's important for us to know, and also, Again, Senator Perdue, with a digital, social, mobile strategy, you're no, you're no longer bound by geographic structure or by a transmitting tower or a right. satellite. Right. It, you really can be everywhere by virtue of choosing the right platforms. Mr. Shell, I'm almost out of time, but I'm, I've been dying to get to you on this question. In your business, your day job, you, you have had to adapt to this evolving nature of uh, different media. Can you... Uh, respond to uh, what Mr. Lansing is pointing out here in terms of how do you allocate resources, what's the focus, what's the genre of, of individual you're trying to reach, and how do you adapt the media use to that, to that goal? Yeah, so I think John said, said one of the most critical parts, which is that radio and television are geographically bound you, and, and very difficult to reach people, by the way, on television, because television, people tune into a platform. You can't just put it up on a satellite and expect people are going to watch the show. You know, a lot of our organizations were started during the Cold War where we're the only alternative was state radio station. The world has changed dramatically since then. The good news for us is actually a good thing for us is that mobile allows, as John said, us to break down geographic barriers. We can broadcast Arabic speakers all over the world through through mobile. People can 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 pull up their smartphone and, and just access an application on there to do that. The other thing that that the thing that that requires though is access to the internet freedom question that was asked earlier becomes a much more critical factor. If you can't access the platform, then it doesn't matter if the content's on the platform. So I think shifting a little bit 
to more of an access. Um, we need more resources for internet freedom because if people can't get on the internet, they can't get our content regardless of how good a job we do. I mean, I, a question I often get asked is why do you even exist? There's CNN, there's you know lots of other places. I was in China a month ago. You can't get CNN on your iPad or your iPhone. It's blocked. So we have to figure out a way both to get the content on the right platform and to get people access to the platforms, which is true in my day job and to, true at the BBG. I've been in places in my career where VOA was the only source of information. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you all for, for your service. You know, this last point that in response uh, to Senator Perdue, I, I think is an essential point to think about. Part of the reason for our broadcasting abroad is that very often we are trying to get to citizens who live in closed societies, whether they be a totalitarian regime, whether they be um, a, uh, a government who explicitly seeks to restrict their citizens' access to uh, uncensored uh, media content, and there are very many places in the world, unfortunately, in which that's a reality. And so part of it, uh, uh, what I'd like to hear from you is, uh, one, I hope that we never view a country that is working to stop our success or our efforts as the reason why we should stop broadcasting. For example, if, if in fact you can't get access to the internet in a given country, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be looking at the circumnavigation abilities to ultimately achieve that access. Because the day we do that, then we might as well just go out of business in terms of surrogate broadcasting. So is that a pervasive view at the board that whether it is whatever it is a society we're trying to uh, ultimately transmit to, to whatever medium, that we are not going to stop simply because it's more difficult to penetrate? Yeah, th thank you, Senator Menendez, and thank you for your voice on this issue and for what you've done and what you've focused on in the past in this area. I know it's a, it's a priority for you. Uh, this is critical to the internet anti-censorship work that we do. The key thing is to empower world citizens with modern unrestricted communication channels so they can get information access uh, and access to information without fear of censorship in places that uh, they can't. And so uh, our internet anti-censorship uh, efforts uh, we have created internet freedom tools that exist in 200 languages. Our tools have allowed over one trillion circumvention page views over the past year. And so uh, we firmly believe as there is more of an, a uh, move towards digital, towards online, that we are gonna continue to uh, operate even and in, in countries where our work is, is most necessary, the enhanced firewalls of Iran and China, which our internet uh, anti-censorship tools have uh, allowed access literally to millions of people and uh, more than a billion internet sessions a day around the globe using our tools. So it's important and it's something that's critical to our mission. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Now let me ask you, uh, Chairman Royce's legislation, uh, who, he has, who has made a priority uh, in the House, uh, I'm sure you've had the chance to review it. I heard, uh, Chairman Shell, your response to the Chairman about one element of it. As a whole, uh, what would you say about the legislation? So obviously it's a big complicated piece of legislation and, and, um, and I know Chairman Royce and I appreciate the work that he and his committee did and his staffers, they spent a lot of time on it. Um, and we were involved in the process and talked to him during the process. I would say in general, I would say there are two things that I love about the bill and two things that I find problematic about the bill. 
Um, I think the bill is very, very good on giving the CEO the authority the CEO needs and, and making the board more of a traditional um, board that has, provides oversight and, and strategic guidance where the CEO runs the organization. I think the bill actually does an excellent job of that. And I think some of the consolidation stuff we talked about earlier is very well done in that, in that bill. I don't, as I mentioned before, like the two boards and two CEOs. I think operationally that's going to be very difficult. Um, and the other thing is I think a lot, there's a lot of language in the bill that, that I would say is more operational. There's language about hiring freezes and physical location and stuff that I personally as a manager of business think may or may not be the right idea but shouldn't be in a piece of legislation that's going to live for decades and decades and decades or, or, or centuries. So, so I think in general it's a, there's, there's really good pieces in the bill and I think that hopefully the bill will have some changes when, when you all pass it. Is that uh, general consensus or? No, I would, I would agree fully with Jeff I, I, on that. I have great respect for Chairman Royce and for the staffers who've worked on this bill, but I think that uh, the challenges that Jeff pointed out are important to note, as are the important uh, changes and reform that's already been put in place in the board, at the board level, and now uh, we're seeing uh, at the management level. Now, let me turn to a question that I, I, uh, you've addressed it to some degree, but I'd like to hear, and maybe from your CEO, um, you know, the one constant that we can depend upon is change. Uh, and the reality is, is when I was uh, in Ukraine at the time that the Russians were invading, uh, and then traveled to Poland after that, I can tell you that the leaders of those countries felt overwhelmed uh, by Russian propaganda. Uh, and felt that to them it was a arm as powerful as any of the military uh, aspects that were crossing uh, over there, in the case of Ukraine, over their boundaries or in the case of Poland, over their airways. And so what is it that you would do differently, structurally or otherwise, that would give you the agility to be able to respond to the Ukraine of yesterday or the ISIL uh, in Paris of today? What, what, what is it that needs to be done in order to be able to have that agility and flexibility in an organization? And as part of that, since my time is almost going to run out, I'll just give you the question you can use the rest of the time in answering, is uh, you've got about a, what, a $700 million budget or yes. so? I look at what the Russians are spending alone, uh, and I say no matter how well organized, no matter how efficient, is it possible to compete uh, in that sphere under those terms and circumstances? So we want you to be as efficient as possible. We want you to be as organized as most powerfully as possible to deliver our content in the way in which we, we, we aspire to. But by the same token, I also think there has to be a little intellectual honesty here about how much is necessary to compete if we think that that is a national security strategy. Uh, thank you, Senator Menendez. Uh, I agree, we are being outspent uh, greatly uh, in the sphere of Russia uh, and China, uh, but that doesn't mean we can't be as impactful and efficient as we possibly can be. It goes back to the uh, empowered CEO and the, and the BBG operating as five entities and not splitting it into the grantees and the federal entities. The one thing we can do is, is as a CEO, the one thing I could do is shift resources rapidly from areas that are not necessarily hot at the moment to areas that are becoming hot and not wait for another fiscal year appropriations to do that.
But if I had to negotiate with another CEO and our board at the federal side had to negotiate with the board on the grantee side in order to shift resources, then we end up running a debating society instead of actually having impact in the world when it's needed the most. Um, I think we can have great impact. In fact, we've added uh, 25 affiliates to the periphery of Russia with this new program, Current Time, that is co-produced, by the way, by the federal entity, VOA, and the grantee, RFERL, and runs every day for a half an hour in the periphery. That wasn't there a year ago. And it's directly countering Russian propaganda every, every day. And our ambassador, Payet, in Ukraine, where I was last week, uh, said it was a critical tool in, in, in the fight against uh, propaganda, as well as the, uh, the, the Ministry of Information there in uh, Kiev. So yes, we are outgunned in terms of resources, and to be intellectually honest, to use your term, uh, it, is, it is an issue. But the only way, given the restraints on our budget, to have the most impact is to have the flexibility to move dollars around quickly and punch hard when a punch is needed. So, the, so to recap, the only institutional change, forgetting about resources for the moment, is the ability for you to move resources within the institution without having to negotiate with another element of uh, your broadcasting. Yeah, as it is today, that, that would be something that boards would have to negotiate with one another um, in order to move money from one side of the organization to the other. If, again, if you envision the 2323 construct of a CEO over the federal side and a CEO over the grantee side that creates a mechanism for dysfunction that I'm not clear why anybody would organize for dysfunction when you could organize to eliminate. Senator Menendez, is going to jump in on one thing. So the, the other tool that I think would, would help John and, and the rest of the organization is probably shifting more of our funds into no-year funds, which, which can be kind of set aside or at least designated to make it easier because the fiscal year with the, the year-designated funds makes it more mechanically difficult to do this too. So one of the things we're asking for is the ability to be able to surge. And the organizational issue is one issue. The no-year funds is another issue because you just don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day. And the other thing I would say too is um, in the private sector, what's happening in media is mobile and digital are making the barriers to entry to launching new media business much smaller. We're going we're gonna to also benefit from that at, here at the BBG because the spending that Russia's doing, China's doing, BBC's doing, is going to come down dramatically in, in, in scale versus our scale when mobile and digital becomes more prevalent. So it's just simply not as expensive to launch things and carry things all over the place. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Very good. Senator Shane. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, and thank you all very much for being here this afternoon and, and for your efforts. I want to follow up a little bit on what Senator Menendez was asking about, because a couple of weeks ago we had a hearing on Ukraine and on Russian propaganda in Ukraine. And one of the things that I think I'm correct on is the, there was testimony just about Russia today, which is the Russian uh, television station, which is having just been in Europe and having an had an opportunity to watch it. It's very slick, and uh, it, it's on you know, all day. I think they're spending about $1.4 billion on that effort, and he testified that the State Department was spending $66 million for all of our um, counter-messaging and civil society support. You were talking about, with Senator Menendez, the $700 million that encompasses your um, budget, and I think, as you point out, you've been very effective in certain areas and cert 
as a child of the Cold War, I grew up when Radio Free Europe and Voice of America were very important to our efforts to respond to the Soviet Union. Um, but the question that I have now is whether what we're doing is in any way adequate to the challenge that faces us, and whether we should be totally rethinking the structure of how we counter message, not only with respect to Russia, but with respect to ISIS and the challenges that we're facing in the Middle East, where a significant part of their um, strategy, um, military strategy, has really been their messaging. And when I asked this question at the Armed Services Committee, um, what I heard was, you know, well, we used to work with the State Department, um, our military, but we've been asked to stop doing that. We got rid of the U.S. Information Agency back in the late 90s. And so my question really is, is what we're doing right now, um, do we have the capacity to do what we need to do around the world in the future with the kind of structures that we're looking at? And so I'd ask you to, if you can, put aside your hat as member of the Broadcasting Board of Governors and CEO, and, and tell me whether, whether we're doing what we need to do. Do we have the capacity with the structures that we've set up to do what, what we need to do in the future? I would say yes and no, and, and it's a complicated question. Thank you, Senator, for your question. Um, you know, I, I wanna hear from John, who was just in the Ukraine, and, and Ken, but I, I think that we have some positives and we have some challenges, right? The positives we have is that American culture is pervasive around the world, and so while we don't spend 1.4 billion on a, on a TV network, everybody's watching that TV network, if they are watching it, or probably watching other things, but they're, they're on their iPhone that's, that's produced by an American company and they're watching, and they're probably on Facebook instead of watching Russia Today, so they're not you know, doing that. So we have a lot of benefits of American culture, CNN International, Lots of different, you know, lots of different uh, American networks that broadcast across the globe, and so American culture is still pervasive and looked up to in a, in a lot of the world. I don't actually think we're looked as colonialists by a lot of the young people around the world. I think we're looked at still as aspirationally as this is the kind of life I want to live, um, as I see it on TV and in movies and in the experience of coming here. That the fact is, however, that we are being dramatically outspent. And that does have an impact. It's on, it, it would be intellectually dishonest to say that our 30-minute daily show in the Ukraine is having as much of an impact as a 24-hour network. It's just not possible. Right. So we're doing what we can with the resources. We think we're more effective with our resources than that 1.4 billion. But um, certainly, if we're going to take it seriously as a country, we have to get serious about this and probably spend um, something commensurate with what our enemies spend, or at least a greater fraction of it. Ken, you want to jump in? Yeah, no, I'd, I would disagree with Jeff to the extent that uh, I actually am concerned about the image that, uh, and I realize your day job at uh, Universal, with the image that, um, that American entertainment companies uh, project around the world. And uh, Martha Bales, who's an adjunct fellow at, uh, visiting fellow at the Hudson Institute, has written about this uh, and thought about this, that a lot of the images that people are receiving around the world that come out of reality television or out of movies today are, are not necessarily the most positive images of the United States. Uh, movies that... Uh, Amen uh, to that. <laughs> or even the images on C-SPAN, I mean. Or even the, exactly, the images <laughs> yeah. on C-SPAN, exactly. Yes. Those too. <laughs> Thank but, you. Uh, no. 
So the uh, it, it is it is so that so this this makes the challenge of of, of public diplomacy it makes the challenge of what we're, we're trying to do uh, much more difficult. And uh, uh, let's face it, the people in Moscow are sitting there creatively making up stories and then making up images to uh, whether it be aircrafts. Uh, shot down over Ukraine or elsewhere, they are doing this on a full-time basis and they are using all sorts of creative techniques with a lot more money than we're doing telling the truth. And the sensationalized stuff will oftentimes grab an audience much more. So uh, we, we certainly could use significantly more resources in what we're doing. Uh, I think given the resources that we have, we're, we're, I think we're doing uh, an, uh, an excellent job. Um. One of the things that has struck me as we've watched the tens of thousands of refugees who have fled from the conflicts in the Middle East is that they're not fleeing to Russia and to Iran and to many of our... Um, oh, I'm sorry. Yes, um, oh, Mr. Lansing. I'm sorry to mean to interrupt. Um, I just wanted to add a thought as well, and that is if you think about the old construct of broadcasting and the Cold War, and it was... Uh, you know, a transmitter and the Russian message going out to everybody. And that's still happening, that's RT. But there's, there's another thing happening, and I think you have to really, you know, focus on the audience. And the audience that we think is most critical are young, 18 to 24-year-old, mostly urban, hip, up-to-speed consumers of media who are not easily fooled, who, who get their media not just from state television, but from each other on Facebook, on social media. The most trusted source of media for an 18 to 24 year old is fr a friend on Facebook, not a friend in Moscow. And uh, so I think that's important because as we shift strategies and shift resources towards more investment in social media and digital platforms, and imagine that our consumer's holding an iPhone or any smartphone and that they're savvier than their mother and dad are, just like my kids are savvier than I am today, and that we can, uh, our strategic approach is to tap into the savvy, younger media consumer, because I guarantee you, and I, I can't back this up scientifically other than my own anecdotal evidence with my own teenage twin sons, is that their faith in traditional media is non-existent compared to their faith in each other and their friends. Um, well, certainly we heard testimony to that effect um, several weeks ago at that hearing, and that um, if we're going to have an impact, we've got to look at how we get into the grassroots and get into those young people and those internet, um, Facebook and other messaging, um, which is much more challenging. And we really haven't had much of a chance to explore that with you all. But Mr. Chairman, I, I'm out of time, but can I ask one more question? When you're making allocation decisions, how are those, or are those, linked to national security priorities in the country, and how, how do you determine those? Oh, we, we are absolutely linked to the NSC and the State Department. We understand the priorities, and we make resource allocations geographically based on those areas that are highlighted and prioritized. And do they come with direct communication to that effect, or do you? They, they don't come with editorial guidance, back to the firewall. It isn't cover this or don't cover that. It's, it's here are the areas of greatest concern to the United States government, and of course we have our own ability to understand where there's a lacking media freedom or other areas that just require the investment of resources, and they, they align up pretty easily. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks to the witnesses for a great testimony. I'm interested in your um, 
uh, anti-radicalization messaging in the Middle East. You have a Middle East Broadcasting Networks, and I understand you have a, a Raise Your Voice campaign to try to counter violent extremism. You may even have a short clip here that, that you've brought with you, and I just would like you to tell me about that effort and kind of how long you've been doing it and, and, and what, what you're seeing in terms of its success. Sure, thank you, Senator Kane. It, uh, the campaign is Raise Your Voice. It, it's uh, both a social media uh, campaign, radio, uh, internet, and television, including weekly documentaries that highlight the plight of families who lose jihadists to, and the families left without the jihadists behind, and you see the impact on the family, and we do have a clip if you'd like to see it. But the, the amazing uh, amount of, of Facebook likes, followers, uh, shared Facebook messages that have gone on through this program over the last few, I guess, couple of months now has really been heartening to us. There's a moderate uh, voice in Iraq that is being raised, i.e. raise your voice, that otherwise was not being heard. And we're surprised to the extent that we've tapped in to that moderate uh, uh, Fever, if you will. I'd love to use some of my time to see the clip if sure. it's not it's too It's a minute long. and a half. Is so. that, Mr. Chair, is that? Oh, sure, that'll leave four minute. minutes. It's, it's, it's a really a quick clip. It's about 30 seconds. Right. Mm -hmm. this, is a, this is a clip of a mother who, who woke up one day to find her son had left to join Daesh. Sound. <laughs> We made it short because we were going to try to work it into our testimony, but we can bring the mm -hmm. whole half hour if you'd like. But it's, it's, the, it's the part you don't see. You hear about the heroic, you know, off to join ISIS. What you don't see is what's left in the wake behind. And then, by the way, her son was, uh, she, their family got a call over his cell phone from a stranger that said, your son is now a martyr. Thank you. And that was her reaction to it. Mm -hmm. Tell us how you distribute material like this. You know, I guess how many net, you know, broadcasting networks help you, but also talk a little bit about the social media distribution. Yeah, so we have the Alhura Television Network and the Radio Sawa across uh, excellent penetration throughout Iraq. 40%, I believe, uh, uh, reach in Iraq, meaning people have seen it at least once a week, the network itself. Mm -hmm. um, the social media aspect has expanded dramatically, as I mentioned earlier. And it, it touches back to the, the notion, Senator Shaheen, that I was mentioning earlier, that we've tapped into not only a moderate force, but a younger demographic, that social media is not their secondary, like it is for me, but it's their primary uh, means of communicating. And what happens is it has an exponential effect. So somebody uh, sees the program, they post it on Facebook, it gets shared, it gets liked, and then others share it. So it has a way of distributing itself versus the traditional TV tower and radio tower. And so we're tapping into a moderate, young audience with a message about jihadism that contradicts everything that's being heard through propaganda. The Middle East Broadcasting Networks, you talk about the penetration in Iraq. Talk, talk to me about penetration in other countries in the region other than Iraq. So it spreads from Morocco all the way across to Iraq. Mm -hmm. uh, the majority of the, of the listening viewing is in Iraq where it's significant. But I can't quote the actual percentages in the other countries, but across the northern uh, tier of, of Africa, it's uh, Middle East, it's significant. This is a question that might be out of your lane, but I'm kind of curious about it. Um, there have been, there's been some speculation that the attack in Paris, I've, I've heard it stated that ISIL 
was absorbing some defeats on the battlefield and knew that that would be messaged in a way that would hurt them. And so that they may have even, while these attacks were coordinated, they may have even rushed them to try to take the sting out of some bad messaging about battlefield challenges. Is that something that, that you know about? I mean, if that were the case, it would really speak to the critical importance of what you do, obviously. That, that, that uh, you know, winning the war is one thing, but if you're gonna lose a big chunk of the war on the battlefield space, then win the, the narrative of the messaging war if, if you can. Um, if you don't know anything about th that speculation, and it would only be speculation, I, I guess I would just offer it as a comment. Uh, even the speculation suggests the critical importance of what you do. Looks like, uh, Mr. Weinstein, you may want to say something. Yeah, no, Senator, I, I, I would say this. The attack in Paris, from what it looks like, would have an all, likely occurred, all likelihood occurred at some point. Whether it was sped right. up or not is, is a different story. Yeah. There's no doubt that uh, Daesh uses images of violence, uh, whether it be beheadings, otherwise, to present a very masculinized vision of what jihad is uh, to, in order to uh, entice the young men in the demographic we're talking about uh, to essentially be a man, to stand up, and to uh, uh, fight uh, to engage in jihad in this way. Uh, and, and these images are absolutely critical to what they're doing. Uh, so, I, I, so they're, they're absolutely essential to what uh, ISIL's been up to. And then just to pick up on comments from my colleagues who are asking more about on the Russia side, I know that you've got a program that you uh, broadcast in the Russian periphery, well, this current time program. Uh, how long have you been doing that? And again, is there a, is there a traditional media and a social media component? Uh, talk a little bit about that. Well, we've been doing it. Um, we've had current time up ever since Russia invaded Crimea. So we were, we were very, you know, I, the BBGs did some very quick work in that. We're very proud of what we did there. We were up 48 hours after, in Russian language, up after that happened. And we've expanded it, as John said, to a number of the different periphery territories since then in the, in the Baltics and, and throughout the region. So it's a, a 30 minute show and it's highly watched and shared across the media, not just in the affiliates, they carry it, but on the social uh, networks as well. I hear uh, nine countries, 25 affiliates, um, but also through a pretty aggressive digital and social media distribution. Yeah, in fact, the, the digital uh, uh, manifestation of that has grown uh, remarkably fast, and we're expanding into Central Asia now as well with current time Central Asia. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to ask a couple of questions. I know we have another panel, and I know people have other pieces of business, but this, getting back, first of all, to have people like you, two board members and a, a very successful CEO at BBG carries a whole lot of weight with me, and your opinions carry a tremendous amount of weight. There is this issue, though, that uh, I think it's an issue of contention, and that is the grantees and their relationship to, to you. And, and I know the next panel is going to speak to this. So I just want you to speak more clearly, if you will. Um, I guess there is some question about whether these grantees have credibility if they're, in essence, arms of the federal government. I mean, is there an independence issue? Is there something else you might share with us before we have this next panel? Since, from the standpoint of reforms, and I'm glad we had the opportunity to hear what you're doing in other places, but there is a piece of legislation that I think you want to see happen in the right way. Um, if y'all could just expand a little bit on that before we move to this next panel. Sure, Senator Corker, I'll, I'll start with that. Um, 
I think about a, a media conglomerate much the same way I would have thought about Scripps Networks, uh, where I was before, six cable networks, Food Network, Travel Channel, HGTV. Um, the, in some cases, a network, Travel Channel is a good example, Scripps didn't own 100% of it, it owned 60% of it. So it had a different financial model, it had a different place on the balance sheet, et cetera. But strategically, we had control of the asset and we managed it strategically. I would make the same comparison with the grantees versus the federal government. First of all, I don't see any issue with independence. We're operating with a firewall and independence is, is, is a given, whether it's a federal entity or a grantee. So I would set that over here. And if there were an issue with independence, we should be having a hearing about that, honestly. Because I, th I think independence is really not the issue. The issue is really, is to me as a, as a media uh, manager for years, and I'd love to hear Jeff weigh in, but you always, with media you always start with the audience and work your way backwards. You start with what do you want to have happen? You have an audience, you have an age of an audience, you have a place for an audience that you want to bring content to and then have something happen, which is impact. You would organize in such a way, in my view, that you would have the greatest amount of impact and the greatest amount of efficiency and the greatest amount of flexibility so that you could surge, particularly with the mission, the critical mission, which dwarfs anything in the cable world of the BBG. So unless there's an incredible argument for why you would make a functional media structure with one CEO and one board like any other media organization in the world is organized, why you would say, well, when the federal government runs a media organization, they, runs, they run it with two CEOs and two boards because they're funded differently. And I would just submit uh, Senator Corker, that the funding is not the issue, the independence is not the issue, the issue is the effectiveness of U.S. international media and how you manage that effectiveness and how you would organize to do that. And I, I just, I'm not a, I know you're not either a full, uh, from years in the government, you were a successful uh, developer in Chattanooga. Uh, it's, to me, I take a business approach and that's the way I would organize it from a business perspective. Yep, I would add. I would add to what John said. Um, we all kind of are up here as as businessmen or former businessmen, looking at this as a as a a business challenge of how do we compete with other businesses across the world. And what I would say is, there's a lot. What I've noticed at the BBG is there's a lot of things that are based on historical um, kind of structures that are no longer as relevant in the world that we operate in. So, so the. The grantees, as they're called, are largely surrogate broadcasters, meant that their mission was to provide local media in places that didn't have local media. And the reality of things is two things have happened since that got set up. One, we've talked about ad nauseum today, geographical boundaries are less and less relevant um, across the globe where you have people coming, getting messaging from all over the place, and particularly amongst our audience that's, that's, that's younger. And then I think the other impact is digital versus traditional forms of media, which are no, no boundaries and no, no technological boundaries. And so I, I, think, that, I think that these surrogates were set up as private entities because it was faster. That was the justification. You could just provide funding to an organization and then let it go. And I think that was a, a smart thing to do. But to completely separate them out, as John said, I, I don't even actually see any benefit to what we're trying to accomplish long term. If, if they've covered it, that'll do, but if you want to add to it. Uh... And, I, and just say, look at what we've achieved uh, in the last year. Look at the uh, synchronization. Look at current time, the success that it's having. Look at the, the reporting out of the Maidan, the work together of RFE and VOA. It helps having a single structure, and it, it, it's made things uh, easier to produce. I think over time it will lead to 
cost efficiencies that will prove to be significant at a, at a highly competitive time in the international media space. And I think that a lot more could be achieved if the right kind of reform gets, uh, gets through. So. Well, we thank you for being here. Look, it, we've, we've all heard a lot of horror stories about BBG. I know all of us have. And at the same time, we all know the importance of the mission. We know that the three of you have come in and really professionalized the organization. Sometimes uh, legislation has a little bit of a lag time, and sometimes it's responding to other points in time and history. But uh, your testimony today has been excellent. Um, we thank you for your service to our country. We're glad you have someone who understands the media business and have given him the job, as, or at least I am glad, and you've given him the job as CEO. And uh, we look forward to working with you productively on legislation to try to you know, capture some of the good things that have occurred, but also help uh, the organization move along. So thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you. And with that, um, we want to thank the witnesses who've just been here. We're moving to the second panel. Thank you. Our first witness on the second panel is the Honorable S. Enders Wimbush, who is Public Policy Fellow at the Wilson Center and formerly a BBG board member and director of Radio Liberty. Our second witness is Mr. Kevin Close, who is currently a professor at the University of Maryland's Philip Merrill College of Journalism, formerly president of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and president of NPR. We appreciate also having uh, two witnesses uh, with such distinguished backgrounds here. I know there may be some uh, differing opinions that are offered here. We thank you for your testimony. If you give it in about five minutes each, we look forward to questions. And again, thank you for your service to our country. Up the mic. Thank you. Thank you. Chairman Corker, uh, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee, I'm honored to have this opportunity to speak candidly to you about challenges to and opportunities for U.S. international broadcasting. And as a preface to my remarks, I want to note that in July 2014, former BBG Governor Dennis Mulhupt and I wrote a long critical article on the need for radical uh, BBG reform. Uh, when I spoke to Dennis this morning, uh, we both agreed that there, would, there was nothing in the piece that we wrote that we would change today. I'd like to uh, recommend in my short remarks, I'd like to um, uh, address in my short remarks three key, to, key issues. First, the media environment. Second, B the BBG's structures of governance and, and problems. And third, the proposed legislation. There are several facts that we need to be clear about. Fact one, in contrast to the period of the Cold War, few countries such as South Korea exist in which governments control and approve all information. Uh, to the contrary, a casual drive across any continent reveals a sustained explosion of information sources available to most populations, including to the populations of our adversaries and those whom we seek to influence. Fact two, as has already been noted, our adversaries have raised the quality of their media games significantly. For the most part, gone are the big lies. In are the actors' nuanced explanations for why they behaved as they have and why it was necessary. And this is important. They don't control all the facts, which in any case are often easily contradicted in a world awash in information. Rather, they try to control the information that matters to them. And in most cases, this is information coming from local media. And this will speak directly to the value of the surrogates as I go forward. 
less and, with less and less control over vis visible facts, they spend more and more time controlling the context in which those facts have meanings to the, meaning to the people they're trying to communicate to. So to me, this means that the appropriate niche in this media landscape for U.S. international broadcasting should be to provide deep, well-resourced, and factually accurate context. The America piece should be a central piece, a central focus of this context. In particular, audiences want to know how our policy is made, how the policy process reflects our worldview, and the different opinions comprised within it. If U.S. broadcasting has any single reason to exist, it should be to seize the strategic narrative about ourselves. An expert in the Middle East told me recently, and I quote him, tell our story. We're not going to stop people from hating America if they choose to hate it, but let them hate what exists, not some figment of their imagination. The Voice of America Charter makes the America story the voice of America's responsibility. This is not to say that the voice of America speaks for the United States government. Indeed, it does not speak directly for the government. But it should have a point of view that reflects our values. And this point of view is, in my view, its essential essence. A word about the Broadcasting Board of Governors, where I served. In my view, it was poorly conceived in the beginning. And not surprisingly, it has performed poorly. Frequent and ongoing evaluations are unremittingly negative and critical. In the uh, longer remarks that I submitted for the record, I cite a lot of these. Uh, but the criticisms invariably fall into three categories. Dysfunction, lack of oversight, and absence of strategy. And this shouldn't surprise us, because the BBG is charged with reconciling two incompatible governance structures, one federal and one private. I was reflecting on uh, CEO Lansing's uh, remarks that uh, trying, to, uh, 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 trying to work with two boards would be uh, like having uh, a, uh, one, uh, one coach or having a baseball team with, with, with two coaches. In fact, he's got it exactly backwards. The problem is, you don't have, that would be right if it were a single organization. The problem is, it's not a single organization. And you have precisely the opposite problem. You have two organizations with one coach trying to coach two different organizations that sit in different leagues entirely. We currently await a new report of possible financial and, and oversight malfeasance at RFERL in Prague, occurring from at least 19, uh, 2013 to present which has gained the attention of the OIG, the FBI, and possibly other federal authorities. The BBG wildly duplicates capabilities across the five networks at great expense to the taxpayers and to little effect. By my count, of the 61 language services hosted by the five BBC, BBC, uh, sorry, BBG networks, of the 61, 22 are duplicated, that is more than one-third in practical terms. This means that U.S. international broadcasting has two separate broadcast services for Albanian, Azerbaijani, Dari, Pashto, Armenian, Bosnian, Georgian, Persian, Macedonian, Russian, Serbian, Ukrainian, Uzbek, Burmese, Cantonese, Khmer, Korean, Lao, Mandarin, Tibetan, Vietnamese, and Spanish. Two of each.
Duplicating services and operational support system costs lots of money, and it severely limits the ability of U.S. international broadcasting to fund new languages where it would benefit our uh, pursuit of foreign policy. And there's no coordination amongst the duplicates. No one, and I mean literally no one, really knows how the, what these services are duplicating, where they contradict one another or U.S. policy, and where their efforts might be made to converge to create something larger than the sum of their parts. The BBG board has also failed to deal with chronic leadership issues. The CEO pr proposition came on the board that I served on, and we put it out first uh, in uh, late 2010 or early 2011. But it took a full five years for the board to appoint a true CEO, and he left in 42 days. The new CEO has been appointed, but it's unclear, as has been commented on here frequently, that he has the support necessary to make the tough decisions. The leadership deficit affects every level of international broadcasting. Kevin Close, sitting here on my left, was the last full-fledged president of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. He left 19 months ago on the 1st of March 2014, leaving that vital network now in probably the most challenging environment since the end of the Cold War, under the control of, and I quote, two acting interim co-managers, one located in Washington who has since departed. Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty still has no permanent president, even as its broadcast milieu churns. The Voice of America has had no director for nearly eight months. The BBG is notoriously allergic to strategy, which is another way of saying that it is mostly unhinged from the process and practice of U.S. foreign policy for which it was intended. We can talk in great detail about that uh, later if you'd like. But I'd like to address the discussion on Ukraine particularly. It posed a, a very difficult test for the BBG. Its response to Ukraine was neither robust, nor nimble, nor quick, despite an influx of new taxpayer funds for that purpose. Nearly a year and a half after Russia invaded Crimea, touching off today's crisis, the BBC, BBG, as you've heard, was able to produce a single half-hour news program for placement on local networks around Central Europe. No, I understand that that's uh, increasing, and that is, uh, and the quality is generally good, which is which is the good sound, uh, the good uh, message. Uh, but this was clearly a feeble response. Finally, a few few words on the perform, uh, proposed reform legislation, HR 2323, from the House side. I'm a strong proponent of this legislation for four reasons. First because it fixes the voice of America as America's voice, the America piece, so vital to our strategic narrative and for making our values, missions, uh, uh, visions, and policies understood around the globe will no longer be ignored or discounted. Second, the surrogate networks, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Radio Free Asia, the Middle East broadcast networks, will benefit hugely from being consolidated into a single management structure with its own private and dedicated board, which means liberated from the current BGD, BBG's often dysfunctional and incompatible structure. This independence is essential for the surrogates to meet the new challenges squarely and expertly and at low cost with high impact. Third, 
Creating what amounts to two companies from five should engender millions in savings and asset sharing while encouraging more mission-centric strategic focus. And finally, both of the proposed new oversight structures will be more specialized and defined, closer to the audiences they seek to influence, and management will be more accountable to them. Board members possessing expert knowledge of our broadcast regions, especially with respect to the vital consolidated grantee network, should promote a much closer connection between U.S. international broadcasting and our foreign policy objectives. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and the committee for your attention. Thank you for the fulsome testimony. If we could hold it to about five on the opening, I've got a hard stop at 429, and I know uh, each of us uh, want to ask questions. So thank you so much for your testimony. Yes, sir. Mr. Chairman, uh, thank you very much for uh, convening this uh, important discussion. Uh, Senator Cardin and other members of the, of the committee, I'd like to just first, first of all thank you so much for doing this and for bringing us together. I want to uh, say that very few issues that have generally come before the, uh, the Congress have done so at such a serious time for international broadcasting and your attention and your concern is, is very justified. Uh, I would like to say that for reasons I will cite today that H.R. 2323 is an important step in the right direction for, for not only consolidating U.S. international broadcasting, but actually stream, streamlining it. I support the bill's major provisions, and I would have only a few minor corrections and changes that I, could, I would propose at another time. H.R. 2323's core concept of two boards independent of each other actually reflects a decades-long evolution towards assuring highest professional standards and principles of journalism for U.S. international media by describing and maintaining arms-length structural firewalls between journalists and foreign policy makers. Numerous statements about these standards and a defense of them are in the record ever since the very first Voice of America broadcast in 1942, which declared the news may be good or bad, we shall tell you the truth. In the decades since then, Congress and White House administrations have repeatedly altered the relationships of the news networks and the foreign policy-making agencies. In 1994, they created the current part-time Federal Broadcasting Board of Governors and double-hatted it as the oversight board for the original private grantee RFERL, and then two more grantees were added in the, in the intervening years, which had to do with creating Radio Free Asia and the Middle East Broadcast Network. The two-decade legislation from 1994, now two decades old, contains the so-called firewall provision, still in effect, which provides that, quote, the Secretary of State and the board in carrying out their functions shall respect the professional independence and integrity of the International Broadcasting Bureau, its broadcasting services, and the grantees of the board. Surely this important statement does belong in H.R. 2323. It adds to the important reform contained in, that, in the legislation, creation of a separate board of directors, directors for the newly created consolidated grantee FNN, the Freedom News Network. The Secretary of State alone under this legislation would be a, also a member of both the new board and the continuing BBG. All other members of the BBG and the Freedom Network board would not be double-hatted or, quote, overlapped. Creation of this new FNN board would achieve effective separation of foreign policymakers and the private nonprofit grantees, as I said earlier, the three of them, RFERL, Radio Free Asia, and Middle East Broadcasting Network. I support this change. Such a board is in accordance with a finding contained in the 2013 State Department <laughs> Inspector General report that observed the system of, quote, the system of having BBG governors serve concurrently on the corporate boards 
of the grantees creates a potential for, and in some cases, actual conflicts of interest as perceived by many and gives rise to widespread perceptions of favoritism in board decisions. I have nothing to support the finding. I just want to point it out to you. I would refer to the highly successful National Endowment for Democracy as a model for a separate nonprofit board. This would actually streamline and make the relationships between the federal agencies and the federal oversight agency board and the grantees much smoother, much more specific, and much more defined. HR 2323 would establish a new position of CEO to run the new Freedom News Network, consolidating the private nonprofit operational authority for the new FNN in a single agency head, such as a CEO or a director. The purpose here is to, is to avoid the double hatting of the federal CEO also acting as a CEO for the newly created private grantee. I think, I really think that I, I wish that the it would seem to provide challenges in the current law, and in H.R. 2323 states that nothing in the law shall be construed to make the grantee a federal agency or instrumentality. That is nice to have. I think it would be very, very, a very serious issue of conflict of interest arising again if we wind up in another, another double-hatted sequence. The, ports could, the courts could construe this situation as being in conflict with unforeseeable consequences. A single CEO would undermine the basic grantor-grant grantee relationship, which, as I'm sure many of us know, under the Federal Grant and Cooperative Agreement Act and its regulations do not permit, quote, substantial involvement, unquote, by the grantor in the activities of the grantee. I was, in my previous time as president of Radio Free Europe, I was uh, disinvited from a number of meetings because of the grantor-grantee prohibitions. And I think this would be much more settled if we could have a separate board that was independent for the independent grantees. I support this goal to clarify the distinct missions of the grantees and the Voice of America. I want to say finally, U.S. international media broadly must be consistent with the foreign policy objectives of the U.S. We know that. We report and distribute news not to make profit, but ultimately to further free speech, human rights, democracy, freedom, mutual understanding, and peace where there is little or none. There is tremendous cooperation between VOA and RFERL. I can cite some of those if there are further remarks. I want to say that what we do and what has been done by U.S. international broadcasting through objective, objective reporting on key issues is all in accord with Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is cited both in current law and in H.R. 2323. I support the goals envisioned by this effective reforming legislation. Thank you for the opportunity to participate in this important hearing today. Well, thank you both for being here and for your insights, uh, having previously served in capacities to understand. Let me just, uh, just to seek some degree of common ground. Uh, the board seems to indicate, the board has indicated that uh, the board itself is functioning in a better capacity than in times past. So just, uh, would, would y'all agree or disagree with that? I would agree with that by my observations uh, dating from uh, sp specifically from 2013 when I returned to Radio for Europe and spent uh, 14 months as uh, interim president and CEO. Yes. Uh, I'm not totally in agreement with that, uh, Senator. Uh, and I have to say it, but the hair on the back of my neck goes up every time I hear the last board blamed for some of the problems that this board has encountered. Uh, the last board, 
put a radical restructuring plan in place, which is now much of it gone into this proposed legislation. The last board proposed the CEO. The last board did lots and lots of good things. Uh, what this board has that is, uh, was unknown in my board is comity among the, the various members. They like each other. They obviously work together uh, very well. But the structural impediments to making that organization effective are just as bad for them as they were for us, and they are not going to be corrected by all the friendship, uh, all of the, of the, of the putative cooperation that they've described today. And, and I think, you know, they've said that. I mean, they said that, that obviously there are reforms that they support. You do support the fact that a CEO is on a full-time basis uh, running the entity. I think you've, is that correct? I, we did. Uh, we realized, uh, in my board, we realized that the place was so badly out of control uh, that, the, uh, that the, uh, uh, the inability to get uh, economies of scale and to recognize asset sharing and saving across all these different networks was, was completely out of our hands, that we proposed putting a CEO in, in place. Um, it took five years for one to get there. I mean, that's, that's a good example of just how difficult it is. Well, believe me, all of us have had a lot of concerns about BBG. So on those issues, we, we have an agreement. Um, we have agreement, generally speaking. I know there are some important details that each of you talked about in your testimony. The piece that I'm trying to understand is this issue that y'all have focused on so, uh, so much in your testimony and that the previous panel disagreed with so much is the grantees themselves um, yes, having their own board. And I'm sorry, because I'm just not internally working at BBG, I'm not sure I understand fully the relationships, but if you could expand on that for me, I would appreciate it. The history speaks for itself to a degree. Uh, the radios, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, were created in the late 1940s, early 50s, and they were specifically created as 501c3s chartered in the state of Delaware as private, independent, nonprofit corporations. The reason they did that was because they wanted to have, first of all, clarity about what they were doing. Secondly, because they wanted to be able to have for ambassadors in countries which were now encountering the surrogate, the truthful surrogate broadcasting being provided by Radio Free Europe and, and then Radio Liberty. Many of those leaders, many of those despots were very unhappy and were very unhappy and wanted to blame the US government directly and make it that kind of a sequence. Ambassadors were allowed, were given the freedom to say it's deny, it's, we deny it, they have nothing to do with us. They do, their, they do their journalism, their reporting on their own standards, and we are not responsible, it's not part of our foreign policy writ. They are independent from us, don't come to us complaining, go to Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and their headquarters is in the state of Delaware. That's why you'll find their corporate, their corporate place. This, Mr. Chairman, the, from the beginning, these surrogates, the grantees, and the Voice of America, the federal agency, were two very, very different animals. And they always advertised themselves as very different animals. With the end of the Cold War, it became uh, easier for everybody to do everything in, in this broadcast environment. And so you began to get a kind of homogenization. Uh, most of the non-English language services of the Voice of America do what they think is surrogate broadcasting. Radio Free Europe and Radio Free Asia and MBN do surrogate broadcasting. Why do they all do surrogate broadcasting without getting any kinds of synergies or very few kinds of synergies or economies or asset sharing across these boundaries? 
I would argue, as I mentioned in my, in my earlier remarks, that um, I, I think that Chairman Schell is wrong on this point. His uh, explanation tended to go in the direction of the surrogates are no longer as valuable as they were because they're some kind of a historical residue. Uh, I would argue that the surrogates right now, because of the way the media environment has evolved, are more valuable now than they have been at any time since 19, 1992 or 1993. Mr. Chairman, I might add also, you, you can hear people describe uh, the fact that there might be two surrogate, a surrogate service and a, and a Voice of America service to one country or to one region, and call that overlap or duplication. I have a different take on that entirely, and I take it from my experience at NPR, where there was both national and local, which gave a tremendous depth in terms of its services to those, to those communities. I view these two different services going to one place as, as parallax. I actually have two headlights that function in my car at night. I need two headlights. I think it's better than one headlight. And I think that the idea of caviling over how much or how little is being spent in these two different services, which provide different services to those listenerships, those social media ships and the publics that are receptive of both these, both these organizations, parallax presentations gives it depth and meaning that otherwise would not be there. I think it's very important to the authenticity of what the U.S. is doing, in, especially in countries like well, Russia. If I could just Ukraine. briefly, because I'm, I'm going to yep. run out of time, I don't yep. want to turn the ranking member. If you had then the structure that they laid out, are you saying that that would cease and desist, those uh, dual, I mean, if they have it the way they've laid it out, where they have one board for both, what would happen relative to those two different types of messaging reading, uh, reaching people uh, in these countries? Well, in fact, in, in places like Russia and Ukraine, there is tremendous cooperation between the Voice of America, the federal, the federal uh, media agency, and Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and I think there's similar cooperation between Radio Free Asia and the Voice of America in the countries they go to. And I don't think that, that uh, having two boards is going to make that more difficult. I think it's actually going to make it a lot easier. And I think that the cooperation, which goes way back to the, to the original... I, what, my, yeah. That's not my question. Yeah. Having one board, as they've proposed, would it diminish the concept that you just laid out? I think that having two boards underlines the fact that the grantees are independent, that they are not government that they are not direct government entities. And I think that's important to the double credibility of both organizations. I really do. It enhances it. It, it streamlines it. It makes it more concrete and real. And I think that the radios, the, the grantees, the three of them now, have done very well and that they're able to demonstrate their, their independence in particular ways. They're, they often are much uh, more efficient. They're much quicker. They do not have a lot of the requirements that are required of, of federal agencies, which I don't want to get into as a negative. It's just a different setup. They can move faster sometimes than you might imagine. Mr. Chairman, I, I have a very different view. I have to say, and Kevin, of course, knows this. Uh, I, I think, I think the, the whole idea of parallax is, an, is a colossal waste of the taxpayers' money. We should be getting the non the non-English, for the most part, non-English language services that are duplicated by the Voice of America, Radio Free Asia, and Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. We should be getting them into one organization. That's where they belong. That's where you can get shared, shared assets. That's where you can move 
resources within an organization much, much faster than trying to move them uh, around organizations. And, and a true telling of what happened when the, uh, when, uh, the Ukraine broke out and Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and the Voice of America found that they uh, were going to be put on the block to cooperate. The true story of that really needs to be told because it was tough. It was hard. Every board, including my, and including one I uh, served on, insisted on more cooperation. We had cooperation. We had uh, coordination. We had harmonization. We had parallax, and none of it worked. I might, I might say that if, I, if I could, I'm, I apologize. I might have to move to Senator Card, and I'm way over my time. And uh, with that, and gonna, but, but he, gonna, he'll probably give you the. Yeah, I'm going to continue in this exact same line, Professor Close. It's good to have you here. Thank you, sir. Uh, I'm proud of your work at the Philip Merrill College of Journalism Thank at you. College Park. We're very much familiar with your work there, and very proud of your public service. So it's, it's a pleasure to have you before the committee. I'm going to try to simplify this a little bit because I think the, the questions the chairman's asking is very important. I'm for reform, as I said in my opening statement. I think we really need to, to streamline the process, have a clear direction for the CEO. But let's talk a moment about one board or two boards. It's all public money, if I understand. All of the journalists, whether they work for the government or work for the grantees, must have independence. That's a key factor of the Voice of America or our grantees. They all have a common mission, that is, uh, to get information out that's important to advance U.S. interest. The grantees are more regional and local. The Voice of America is more centralized in its message, uh, uh, in its mission. So let me just play the devil's advocate for one second. Why not? go even further. Why not just have one agency here? Why not allow these funds to be fungible so that we can be quickly responsive to the needs of America based upon an independent board with a CEO working closely with Congress so that we can allocate the resources as efficiently and quickly as possible Maintaining journalistic independence and maintaining the overall mission integrity and, and accountability through the board to the Congress. Well, Mr. Senator Cardin, I might, I might just respond. Uh, one thing that is, not, that is not mentioned there is what would, that, what would that single organization be? Would it be a federal agency or would it be an independent an independent private nonprofit corporation? Well, it's, it's, all, it's all governmental money. Yes, sir. We have to understand that. And I understand that the grantees are non-governmental. I really do understand that. But we are talking about public funds. And if the concern is the integrity independence of the grantees, then don't we have that problem with the federal program, which we brag about its independence as far as its journalists are concerned? Absolutely, Senator. You, you, you're looking at two different beasts here. It, it's not one company. It's two companies, and they're very different. The single organization solution is the optimum solution. More optimum would be to, to, uh, to have it outside the federal government, a BBC-like uh, arrangement. But that means that you're going to have to defederalize some pieces of U.S. international broadcasting, and that's tough. Uh, you know it better than I do, but certainly that's the optimum way. Short of that, 
the proposed legislation to create real pockets of excellence, two boards without overlapping boards, two boards that can function efficiently for their separate missions, I think is the best solution. And on the, uh, on the grantee side, I do believe that a consolidation would, would, would make streamlined and make more coherent what the grantees do. And I think it, makes, it, it, is, it is a matter which I think makes much, makes much sense. And I think that the, uh, the thrust of the legislation in that direction, I think, is, uh, is something which... It may, is but I'm throwing out a radical change here. I'm saying not only bring the three grantees together, why should there be a difference between the three grantees and the Voice of America? I would say, sir, in my, in my history, I've worked for independent, private, almost always private, uh, either for-profit or non-profit news organizations, and I find, myself, I find that very compatible to the kind of journalism that I'm used to doing, being part of, and directing. And uh, that, that has to do with a private but, but I, I just would tell you, I, in my experiences with the Voice of America and the people who work for the Voice of America, they are top flight. They're good people. So I don't think it's inhibited them to be a federal agency. I now, don't... you may be right. I'm not arguing whether it should be federal or, or, or whether it should be private right now. That's not my issue. My issue is why, different, why should there be a differential between the Voice of America and the three grantees? I think that the, the, the core reason from my, my perspective is, ba is based on the, on the powerful history, which is the independence of the, of the grantees gave them a, a, a kind of access to people in the, in the broadcast target regions who were very responsive to as much distance as you could get between credible media and the role and the presence of the government in their activities, in their, in their thinking, in their strategies and in their devotion yeah. to independence. They, they, do, they do very different things, uh, Senator, and uh, especially surrogate broadcasting, which is research-based, requires a very different approach to how one thinks about addressing these audiences, especially as the surrogate function increasingly is going to be aimed at local media, below the, below the national media side. The Voice of America has never been configured to do that effectively. So why do we want to keep all of those language services over there, which sort of pretend to be able to do this? They do, some of them are doing surrogate broadcasting, or say they are. Why don't we get the people who can do surrogate into an organization that does surrogate? Give it its own direction and its own board. I am a businessman as well, and when I listen to the businessmen who were up here uh, prior to our appearance, uh, I, I'm, I'm confused by the, uh, this idea, well, you, you know, we're just going to have one director and one board looking after a whole bunch of, 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 of or, uh, apples and oranges, and why that's efficient. I don't see that as efficient at all. Let's get, make, put the organizations that cohere together and invest assets in them that uh, allow them to hit their target with the sharpest point of their spear. Senator, I might, I might add, I think that what you're hearing here is we, we, we may not realize this, but we're actually in furious agreement. Well, we do agree. <laughs> and by the way, the, the NED, the NED uh, example that Kevin has suggested, the National Endowment for Democracy for the, for the surrogates, is a very, very good example. A very good example. Well, I, I think this debate has been extremely interesting. I, th I think it makes it clear that uh, we do need Congress needs to act. I think that is uh, absolutely essential. And uh, we, of course, have the um, uh, 
what is proceeding through the, the, the House of Representatives. And I know the chairman is very interested in, in trying to get um, consensus here in the United States Senate. So this testimony has been extremely helpful, and we will look to try to homogenize some of these ideas. And uh, I, there's no question that we all agree there can be greater efficiency and there's got to be greater accountability, uh, and we understand that. We also understand it has to be more nimble and to be able to respond quickly to the challenges that we face, uh, that what uh, other countries are doing uh, is probably more challenging today than at any time in modern history. So the work uh, being done here by BG is, is very important to our country. Uh, for the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business Thursday, including for members to submit questions for the record. We would ask the witnesses that are, if questions are submitted, that you would respond promptly to the questions uh, so they can be made part of, of the record. On behalf of Chairman Corker, I want to thank both of you and me. Thank both of you very much for your testimony. And with that, the committee will stand adjourned. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, sir.